I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we continue not only our series Joy Story, but we continue in the second part of a uh, two-part message. Last week I shared with you the first part called The Stranglehold of Worry. We talked about how worry really does have a stranglehold on individuals' minds and lives and how it seeks to strangle out our joy, strangle out our peace, and a number of things. And we specifically looked at it in context of, uh, of broken relationships. And one of the things that we looked at last week, and we're going to look in Philippians 4 again this week and continue on in the passage, but one of the things that we talked about was that in Philippians chapter 4, God gives us four, uh, three things, rather, to undermine the effect of worry and anxiety in our lives. And the first one is right living, and we looked at that last week, specifically, again, in context of broken relationships and how those can impact our lives with worry and anxiety. And this morning, I'd like to spend some time talking about right praying and what, the, what, that ta- what that looks like, rather than just saying, just pray about it, but what right praying looks like. And then the third thing is right thinking, thinking about our mindset, thinking about what we allow our minds to, to focus upon. And I would encourage you, if you weren't with us last week, um, please be sure to listen to the podcast. It's up, it's posted, and it's there. Well, it is a fact of life, and I think it's very safe to assume that every individual here is at some point, perhaps whether this morning, this past week, yesterday, at some point you found yourself worrying or concerned over something or even anxious about something. Others may find themselves in a place, and there really is a very large spectrum of how individuals are impacted by worry and anxiety in their life, some from just a concern that will surface from time to time, others from an entire mindset and perspective that anything that happens, anything that comes in life is affected and and comes through the grid and comes through the filter of worry and anxiety and all of the feelings and emotions and perspective that comes with that. So I think about everyone here at some point has been affected by worry or anxiety in some regard or another. And then I would also venture to say that just about everyone here If you've dealt with worry or anxiety, everyone here at some point has um, received the ever-so-helpful advice of a well-wisher who knows you're worrying about something, and their their ever-so-helpful advice is, I wouldn't worry about it as if I I were you. (laughs) Just don't worry about it. And, and I say that jokingly because very rarely, if ever, is it easy just to tell someone, don't worry about it. In fact, I, I told the individuals before, they said, well, just don't worry about it. I said, well, I mean, that's easy for you to do because it's not your issue. Uh, it's not your issue to worry about. And, but really, when we, when we tell someone, well, just don't worry about it, many times we just add a load onto whatever it is we're already carrying mentally or concerned about because they've been dealing with the worry and or the anxiety and they've not been able to put an end to it or to identify and close it down. And so we're, they know now it's something they shouldn't be worrying about or, and, and it ends up adding to the list of things. One of the things that... Um, a survey that I'd looked at this past week talking about worry. A, a group of people had been uh, entered the survey and just talked about the things that they worried over, the things that they were anxious over, things that caused anxiety in their lives. And of all of the different categories and answers that people gave, of all of those that answered, eight, only 8% of the answers that were given that caused worry and anxiety, only 8% were actual things to be concerned over. The other 92% of the things that individuals worried over were either imaginary would never happen or were beyond their control anyways. And that really just identifies not only the impact of worry in our lives, but how it skews our perspective, but it continues to remind us that anxiety and worry is very much a part of the human journey in life. And while I say it's very much a part of the human journey, human existence in life, while worry and anxiety are very much a part of that, that's why scripture continually tells us not to worry, not to be anxious, What we have to remember, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, what you have to remember is that while worry and anxiety are a part of the journey in in human existence, they're not intended to be a part of the, the Christian way of thinking. They're not intended to be a part of the Christian perspective in their mindset. Listen to what Philippians chapter four tells us, beginning in verse number four. We're gonna read verses four through nine. It says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the peace of God will be with you. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, I think if I were to ask you, if I were to do a survey or a poll, and I would ask you, give me one word. You're only limited to one word. You can't do two words, three words, squeeze an extra answer in. One word that you would use to describe the Christian life. I would imagine there's a number of different words that would come out. I I would assume some would say, well, forgiven. That we're forgiven through Jesus Christ. He's, He's changed us and by the grace of God. And others might use the word grace. Talk about it in Ephesians, it says it's by grace we've been saved. Um, other, someone might say cross. There's a number of words, and all would be good words, and, and all would be full of different meaning and symbolism in the Christian life. But a word that I would suggest, and we've talked about this part of the Christian life before, but a word that I would suggest is partnership. But the Christian life is a partnership. That it's a partnership. It's, it's a partnership with what God's doing in us. It's a partnership with what the Holy Spirit's working in us. And what God is working into our lives, we're intended to flesh out. That he's working in and we're to flesh it out, to live it out. That's why it's a partnership. Galatians 5.25 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That there's a partnership. We're following his leading. In Romans 8.17, it talks about, Romans 8.14 rather, it says that we're led, we're continuing continually led by the Spirit of God in our lives. So there's a partnership. He's working in us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He desires to renew your mind. He desires to change your life. And so it's a partnership. We're following his working in our lives. But when we think about a partnership and, and following him, one of the key things to remember is that it's a partnership in our following him. That means that God doesn't adjust his plan, his agenda, his purpose according to, to your plan, your purpose, your agenda. Rather, we're always looking to align our lives with who God is. We're aligning our lives with who he's revealed himself to be in his word. We're continually walking in alignment, in greater alignment with the nature of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. And so our lives are a a continual alignment into who God is and who he's calling us to be, who he's identified we are to be in scripture. And as there's this continual alignment, one of the things that we have to remember is that it has to be intentional. That it's not a passive journey in following Christ. That there has to be intentionality in aligning our lives with who God has called us to be. I mean, you never, you don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden you're more holy. That it's a matter, it's a very intentional journey of of being willing to follow Christ and letting him uh, define things in you and continuing to align your life in you. That Christ-likeness doesn't just happen. It's a journey. It's something we're very intentional in. Uh, If you were to show me a Christian and tell me this person's a Christian, but they're very passive, they're not very active in, 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 uh, in following Christ, I would tell you, and that's a Christian that's not growing. Because we have to continually be in alignment and seeking him. And if we have to continually be in alignment with him, the thing we have to remember is that our natural drift is not towards the things of God. Our natural drift is away from the things of God. Our natural drift is not towards Christ's likeness. It's a drift away from him. Look in um, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. It says, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away, that there's a natural drift that takes place in our lives, that there's a natural drift away from the things of God. Romans 8 talks about it, that there's a natural drift in our mindset away from the purposes of God, away from his work in our life. So we have to continually be working to align our lives with him. And when we we think about this, this continual alignment, many times we talk about this drift away, we can think about all the different things that would pull on our lives. You think about the different, uh, the the things that scriptures talk about, talks about sinful, sinful behavior, sexual desires, the lust, all these things. We can have these, these massive sins that we would, we, in our minds, we would identify as these big things. And those are the things that are going to pull us the wrong way. But what we can't forget is that it says entire being, our entire nature is to drift away from God. That means that even in our minds and really beginning in our minds, our natural drift is away from the things of God, not towards the things of God. And so when it comes to worry and anxiety and its effect in our lives, we have to realize that God's intent is to continually undermine that drift of worry is really our, 
our seeking to contain, maintain control or, or to, to overthink something rather than entrusting it to God's hands. And so when it comes to dealing with worry and in our minds, God gives us several things to undermine worry and to continue, continually keep our hearts and our lives in greater alignment with who he is, to continually bring ourselves in a greater uh, consistency with his nature. And so we'll give you three things from this passage, and, and both of them will speak to the, the right praying and the right, um, the right thinking and, and addressing uh, the root issues of anxiety and worry. So the first thing that he gives us in Philippians chapter 4 is found in verse 6. He speaks of prayer, that prayer is, is one solution to not only dealing with worry and anxiety, but also to continually aligning our lives with who God is. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, Paul could have easily just written. If you remember, he wrote this to a group of believers in Philippi, a house church gathered together uh, in, in an individual's home. And he could have heard the things that were making them anxious, the things they were worried over. And he could have just told them, he, he could have just written, well, we'll just pray about it. Just like we say, just, well, just don't worry about it. He could have said, well, just pray about it. And I think oftentimes that's one of those Christianese things that we'll give when we really don't have any other answer to give somebody. We'll tell them, well, we'll just pray about it. Uh, you just need to pray about it. Or have you prayed about it? And I'm not, I'm not trying to devalue the importance of prayer in our lives, but I want you to see that Paul didn't just say, well, just pray about it. He took time to take prayer and he laid it out into four different things to look at on how we, we can go about praying over matters in our lives and how prayer really is a key part in undermining worry and undermining anxiety in our lives. And you might say, well, four different ways of prayer. I struggle with just one. But he, he lays out four different ways that we actually, we can practice prayer in our lives and put it into practice in our, in, in our daily lives. The first one is uh, in, in our Bible, if you have a, a translation like mine, I think I have NIV, is he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, every situation by prayer. He says, by prayer, or some translations might say by adoration. Uh, and really what it's speaking of when he says prayer or translation says adoration, he's talking about daily consistent time set apart to be with God. That there's a daily time of, of you're, you're adoring, you're recognizing who God is. You're recognizing who he's made you to be. You're spending time with him. You're allowing his word to speak into your life. You're opening your heart in prayer to, to open to God, to listen to him, to, see, to seek him. It's, rather, it's being very intentional to carve out space in a daily systematic routine to spend time with God. That's the type of prayer he's talking about, this, this adoration. I'll encourage you, if you're dealing with worry and anxiety and fear in your life, you will never begin to undermine fear or anxiety or worry in your life without a consistent daily time in God's word and in prayer. That there is no other path around it. You've got to begin by having consistent daily time with God. It's called adoration. We're opening our hearts. It's building relationship. I've shared this example before, but the only way I build relationship with my wife or the only way I build relationship with my children is I invest time we invest time together. I spend time with them. They spend time with me. We open our hearts. We do things together. That's what spending time with God is about, that adoration, that prayer. It's spending time, investing time with God. Many times individuals will talk about, well, I don't have you know, all the time to do it. Well, start somewhere. Just start somewhere. Just in some way, do something that gets your heart moving towards focus upon him. And, and really, you could look at when, when things come in your life and when challenges come, what order of, do things happen? Do you worry about it? Do you try to solve it and then you pray? Or do you first begin to, to pray? You go to God. Your heart's natural drift is towards God and toward looking to him and looking to him for the answer because you've been spending time with him at some point in the day and there's things from God's word that are speaking to you. There's, your heart's been open in prayer and he's just continuing to reveal himself to you. She's talking about that, that adoration, that consistent daily creating space to be alone, to spend time with God. And you might have I really don't know what your schedule looks like. I, I, we have a, hundreds of different schedules sitting in this room this morning, and I can look at different seasons and phases in my life. Some might say, well, you know, you're a pastor. It's easy. That's, your job is to read and pray. Um, and one of the things that I'll, I'll do is I consistently, and ever so, before even going into the ministry, but especially once I went into the ministry uh, for full-time ministry, I, my office here, time here, is I've always intentionally created my time with God away from the office. 
Like before my day starts, before I begin chasing emails, before I, tip, before I arrive in the office, I create time. I get up early and create time with God. I spend time reading, spend time praying. I can remember times of shared times in the military. I'd get up, be on base by five in the morning and have different things that would be going. I can remember, be up, sometimes I try to get up earlier, but then there's a point your body is so exhausted because you're up so late with different commitments. It's hard. You're just peeling yourself out of bed to go. So I remember when lunchtime would come, I would go sit in my car. And I would have my Bible with me and I'd sit in the car and I'd read and I'd pray and I'd open my heart to God. And sometimes my wife and I would do it in the evening. And my point is, it doesn't matter what your schedule is. What matters is the excuse you're using to not have time with God. So disarm the excuse, make, be intentional to create space in your life to get alone with God. Get alone with him in his word. Get alone with him in prayer and allow him to begin to speak to you. If, if spending for 30 minutes is too much, start with 10. Start with one chapter. Start with half a chapter and then pray back to God. You say, well, I run out of things to pray about. Well, pray back some of the things that you've, you've just read in scripture, but allow God to reveal himself to you. That's what Paul says when he says prayer and, or adoration, that we're building relationship with God. The second type of prayer that he talks about is not just adoration. He talks about, he uses the word petition in verse six. He says with prayer and petition, or depending on your translation, it might, may, might say supplication. Uh, Hebrews chapter five says Jesus is a really good picture of what this looks like. And it points to the picture of Jesus praying in the garden when he was praying in the garden just before the cross. And really the picture is that our, with, when it comes to petition or supplication is that our hearts have been, your, hearts have just, your heart has been burdened with something. That there's this, this massive need. There's something that your heart is just so heavy about and it's taking that need and just presenting it to God or wrestling in, in prayer. The Bible talks about wrestling in prayer over that and, and really just giving it to God and entrusting it to God. And it's continually giving it to him until you sense that the answer has come. And my wife and I have had times both over our kids and over situations in life and over challenges in life that it's like our heart is just burdened. And I'm sure others have been here where you just sense like there's just a hole in your chest with this matter that you're carrying, this burden that's just weighing you down. And we just continually take it and give it to God and give it to God. And as I've said, I've shared on Wednesday nights before, sometimes for me, the, the most powerful prayers have been one or two words. I'll either say help or I'll say Jesus, or I'll say Jesus help, and he'll know what those words contain. That it's just presenting this need, this burden to God, saying, God, I don't have the answer. I don't have the solution, but I know you do, and I know you're the answer, and so I just open my heart to you, and I, I take this burden that my heart is carrying, and I, I lay it before you, and I say, God, I'm, I'm petitioning you to answer. I'm presenting this to you, knowing that you're the solution, you're the answer. The answer lies outside of what I can solve, what my mind can come up with, what my understanding can comprehend. And so God, I am taking this need and I'm giving it to you, saying here, it's yours, please solve it. That's petitioning. That's that supplication of giving it to God and saying, God, I give you this need. And that's why when he says, pray over everything, he says, be anxious for nothing, but pray over everything. He's talking about instead of letting your mind sit in the free fall of worry and anxiety and keeping the burden inward, he says, take it and present it to God. Give it to God. Give it back to him and say, God, this is your thing. Solve it. So his prayer and petition, the third type he says is, is thanksgiving, or a different way you could look at it is to think about worship. I loved what I believe Melvin had set up here is that worship is just, it's, it's getting our perspective, our focus out on God, on focus on, our focus on who he is. But it's this thanksgiving and worship. And sometimes we don't, there's times of worship like we do corporately where we're worshiping God and we're lifting him up and we're singing songs and raising our voices and clapping and raising our hands. But sometimes we can underestimate the power of worship and thanksgiving in our prayer life. Just to worship God, to get our perspective on God. If you find yourself in a time of prayer and you're presenting your need to God and you find that you're doing far more worrying than praying, then pause the thing that you're trying to pray over and just spend a little bit of time in worship. Because what worship does, worship shifts our perspective. Worship causes us to, to no longer see God through the lens of our issue. See, when we're praying and just trying to give a need to God and you find yourself in the cycle of worry and, and anxiety in your mind, many times what will happen is through worry and anxiety, we begin to view God through the lens of our problem. And we view God based on what the need is. But worship reminds us that we lift our eyes up to God 
and present the need to him. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 121, he says, I look up to the mountains, but where does my help come from? I look past the mountains and I lift my eyes up to the maker of the mountains, the one who has made heaven and earth. Worship lifts our eyes, it lifts our perspective up to see God for who he really is and to focus upon him for what he's doing and who he is. I think a, a, a fourth way of prayer that he speaks of in verse six, he says, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He says, request, it's be specific. Be specific in your praying. Be very specific. The requests speak of a specific need. Many times it's very tempting. It's very easy to come to God in prayer and We'll have a number of things. We'll be very general. Well, God, just touch so-and-so. God, work in that situation. I pray you touch their heart. But be specific. Be specific. If you're praying for someone who has a need in their heart and believing that God will work in their life, say, God, bring conviction into their heart. God, I pray that you'd soften their heart to receive the gospel. God, I pray you do this. But be very specific in your praying. And one way to think about it in your praying, when, if you're praying and being very general or being specific, when it comes to God answering, do you want him to answer in a general way or do you want him to answer specifically? So pray specifically, believing God will answer. And when it comes to, to these four types of prayer, I really think in the Old, the Old Testament character of Daniel best exemplifies all of this. See, Daniel is most known for being the individual who was thrown into a den of lions, and he survived the night. God rescued him. But what we can't forget, though, the one thing that got Daniel into the trouble that ended up ending him, landing him in the lion's den, it was because he lived a life of prayer. That Daniel was a man of prayer, and he really exemplified all of these. And I, I think it stands out best is when he's thrown into the den of lions. And if you look at it in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, when he's thrown into the den of lions, the den of, of hungry lions, because it says the very next individuals who were thrown into the den were eaten before they even hit the ground. So it wasn't like these, these lions were passive or weren't hungry. But we see that when he hits the ground, when he gets in the lion's den, his first response, and it, you found if you're in a, in a very tight spot, a very challenging spot, your first response is usually your most natural response. Daniel's first response, his natural response was to pray. It flowed out of him. He prayed. He called out to God. And Daniel's a great example of what these four types of prayer look like. And if you'll notice in verse six, one more thing he gives us before we move on when it comes to prayer he says, he talks about prayer, and then he gives a condition on where these four types of prayer are to be fleshed out or to be lived out in our lives. The four types of prayer, verse six. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, not in some situations, not in the circumstances that you can't solve on your own, not in the things that, that you try not to think about. He says, in all situations, in every situation, to pray to pray over these matters, to pray over these circumstances, to pray over those things and give them to God. And when we do that, the, the return is twofold in our lives. The effect is twofold in our lives when we pray over things. The first thing is that it is impossible to worry and pray at the same time. It's impossible to worry and pray at the same time. We've, I've, I touched on it a second ago, but just try it. You either end up praying or worrying. You can't do both. And so he's saying, pray over things. Don't be anxious over them. And it, it reminds us to put our focus back on God. And then secondly, it recenters our hearts and it recenters our minds on who God is. It reminds us of who God is and that we need to look to him and trust him. That prayer is really an expression of dependence. It's a looking to him. It's a placing our trust and our faith in him. So one of the answers to um, undermining the issue of anxiety and worry and the effect of that in your life is to pray and to pray according to scripture, the way God's word says. I believe a second tool that he gives us and the two more to give you and both fit now in the category of right thinking. And I just want you to think about that, aligning our minds with what God is saying and what he is doing in Philippians chapter four. But the first, the, the second thing to look at when it comes to undermining worry and anxiety. The first one we talked about was prayer. The second one I want you to see is, is found in verse eight. And, and um, the solution is thought replacement. Thought replacement. Look at verse eight. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, often I believe when worry and anxiety come into your mind, come into an individual's mind, that we misunderstand what we need to do, and so we, we misapply um, our action into, into that opportunity. And many times what will happen is that when an individual 
Um, when, when a thought comes, when worry happens and, and, and a concern comes into your life that brings worry and anxiety, that when that thought comes, the first thing that many times an individual will do is they'll begin to focus upon that specific thought and the concern that comes with it. And, and then because they're focusing upon that thought, immediately the emotions begin to align with that thought that's having that thought of fear, the concern, the worry, the anxiety, whatever's attached to that. So the thought comes and our feelings begin to, to attach or be, be filtered out of that thought that we're focusing upon. And then any other thought that comes right after that comes and the thoughts that come that immediately affirm the feeling we're having that is out of the, the, the thought of worry and anxiety in our minds. And so another thought comes that reinforces that and another thought comes that reinforces that and another thought comes that reinforces that. And before long, an individual will find themselves in kind of a, a, a free fall under the momentum of anxiety and worry and thought after thought and feeling after feeling that continues to confirm after confirm and confirm and confirm and confirm. And so those thoughts come and they just continue to come and continue to come. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just this wave of anxiety and worry and anx that will come and continue to bombard a heart and bombard a, uh, their mind. And many times um, what we have to realize is that be when our minds get to that place, that we've allowed our minds to set into kind of in a rut of thinking that continues. Anything that comes will immediately attach itself to that line of thinking and those feelings that we're having. I want you to see this quote from one author that I was reading uh, recently. If you could put that on screen, it says, it's a law of life that if a man thinks of something often enough and long enough, he will come to a stage when he cannot stop thinking about it. His thoughts will be quite literally in a groove out of which he cannot jerk them. You know, it speaks to that reinforcing of thought and reinforcing of feeling that continues to confirm the original thought that brought in the worry and that brought in the anxiety. And really, when we, we have to realize is that when whatever you wire into your mindset, you ha God, by his grace, gives us the ability to wire out. So if we wire in a mind frame that caters to worry and anxiety, God in his word and God in his wisdom gives us the plan to wire that out. Oftentimes, when worry and anxiety happens in a life, the approach will many times be to endure it. They'll pray, hoping it'll go away, try to, um, try to just find someone who can encourage you. But there's a number of different approaches that we'll take to try to, to endure, to withstand, to kind of hold on until the worry and the anxiety has subsided, until the next time would come. But really, when, what we have to realize for the follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if you're a Christian here, as a follower of Jesus Christ, God has given you the authority to confront and to replace every thought that comes into your mind. That is a God-given right that he has given you. And we'll look at a passage in just a moment um, to look at it. But I want you to get the picture. Is that if you were at your home and there was a knock on the door and someone were to, when you open the door, there's an individual there who is incredibly hostile trying to, and violent, trying to force his way into your home to destroy your home to destroy your marriage, to destroy your family, to harm those, your occupants inside. And the moment that you opened the door and you saw them standing there, you knew what their full intent was. Would you passively let them come through the door? Or would you exhaust yourself and all energy possible to confront them and to throw them out? I think every individual here who cares about their family and cares about uh, those things in your home, that you would confront the invader and you would immediately exhaust yourself and all means necessary to disarm them and to throw them out. What the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, regarding the enemy, and we'll look at the spiritual dimension in just a moment, but in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it's talking about the enemy that you have in life. The Bible says that you and I have a very real enemy, the devil. We looked at him and his nature a bit last week. But the Bible says that you have a very real enemy, but Colossians 2.15 says you have a very real enemy who, while he's powerful, he's been disarmed. And because he's been disarmed, God has done the disarming, and now he's given you the authority to throw him out. And so when the thoughts come that, that bring fear and anxiety and worry and depression and anything that would come with that, we have to remember that we are facing an enemy who has been disarmed and God has given you the authority to confront and dislodge him and to throw him out. That is why if you'll look with me, um, if you'll look with me in Colossians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 3. 
As you turn there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, I'm reminded of a quote that I read recently of a French general. He was asked, he said, in a, in a war, which side wins? He was asked, in a war, which side wins? And the general responded, he said, the side that advances. And see, the enemy's attempt, his attempt, attempt and focus is to constantly keep your mind in the defensive posture. To be throwing fear and worry and concern and things that would undermine your peace and to continually keep you and your mindset in a defensive posture. But as the French general said, the the side that wins is the side that advances. God, by his authority and his design, wants to advance your mindset into a renewed frame of mind that can respond and recognize how the Holy Spirit's leading. That's why in Romans chapter 12, and stay in 2 Corinthians 10, I'm coming right back there, but in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it talks about the renewing of our mind. One one, uh, translation says that we need to have a total uh, renovation, a total reworking of how our minds think, and that's a working that the Holy Holy Spirit does and he brings as we are surrendered to him. And it says in doing that, it leads to understanding and knowing God's will. But it begins with an advancement in our minds. And look in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. It doesn't say to, to debate them. It says to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. But it says God has given us the authority and the tools to demolish every stronghold. He says we demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments, and we demolish every pretension. So I took time in my office just to look up the definition of pretension so we could all be on the same page. The definition of pretension is this. It says a claim or an assertion of a claim. So it says that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have the authority to demolish arguments and every claim or assertion of a claim that would set itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That is why we don't just, we don't just try to endure or even just resist a, a thought of concern or worry or anxiety or fear, but rather we confront it and we replace it. So what God's word says is we replace the thought. We don't have to take ownership of every thought that would come knocking at the door. The Bible tells us that. We just looked at it. It says to take captive your thought life. And so the claim or the assertion would come like this. Well, what if, what if the, the, what the doctor's checking might be more than just a checkup? What if the reason he's pulling blood work might be because he's concerned about something more and he's just not ready to tell you yet? What about, and we have all of these little fears and all of the, the things, and what it is, is it's the enemy trying to lay claim to your mind. Yeah. It's fear trying to lay, lay claim to an assertion that he's planting in your mind. It's recognizing that the, the God says you don't have to accept every thought that comes your way, but you can take it and you can measure it with God's word. And when we allow God's word to come and to speak to our lives and we're familiar with his word and he's speaking into our hearts, then it becomes really a built-in radar that can recognize um, and that can recognize and really detect and show us the things that are not consistent with who he's, he's revealed himself to be. For many times, we've allowed worry and anxiety to come to to become such a permanent resident in the house that we don't even recognize it's there until it's already made a mess. But what God wants us to do is to recognize the guest before he comes in, to confront him, and to, to really show him the door. And that comes with a continual, consistent intake of God's word to not just resist the thoughts, but to replace them. That is, this is really where so much of, of what God's word talks about is the importance of having our minds set up on the truth of his word to let our minds be filled with the truth of his word. It's so crucial in your journey and your following Christ and really the battle that I'm talking about this morning, the, the crucial part is what you're willing to fill your mind with. And God is so concerned with what you fill your mind with that you have things to replace those thoughts when they come, to really expel and to replace and kick out those thoughts when they come, is that it's so crucial. He he gives you the diet. He lays out the menu of what we should allow our minds to focus on. So when an an impure thought comes or when a worry comes or when anxious thoughts come, that we immediately recognize and replace it with something different. Listen to the menu, he says in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Philippians chapter four, he says, Uh, Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, 
whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He says, when thoughts come that are not consistent with, with what God says about you, when thoughts come that are not consistent with who you know God to be, to not accept them, but to expel them and to replace them with God's word, to replace them with something that, that fits this category, to replace them with things that are positive, to replace them with things that are uplifting, replace them with things that are pure, replace them with things that are noble. And I love this summary. He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He says, there's plenty of things to focus your mind on. Just make sure that it's excellent and it's praiseworthy. And when I, when I read that word, he says, excellent or praiseworthy, perhaps the best way for you and I to think about it and to really put it into application is to think about your thought life and the things you allow your mind to, think, to settle on. And if you had a, a window on your forehead that individuals could walk up to you and view into your forehead and see visually exactly what it was you were focusing on and allowing your mind to think upon, would the thoughts you were having be praiseworthy or cringeworthy? He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That is training our minds to focus on, on the positive things, the things that are consistent with the nature of God, consistent with his continued work in us. And then the last thing that I would give you this morning, and it, and it fits continually with the, the thought replacement or continuing in that thought, is, is what I would describe as your testimony. Look in verse 9, he says this. Verse 9, he says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. He says to put into practice, in a sense, what you're declaring with your life, what you're declaring with your actions. It's your testimony. Now, in Ephesians 6, there's several in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the New Testament, it's written to different house churches and different groups of people in different cities and locations. The book of uh, Ephesians, just before Philippians, is very similar to, to Philippians in a number of ways. It was written to a group of believers in the city of Ephesus, not Philippi, but Ephesus. And very similar in a number of things, but it's talking about since Christ has been risen from the dead, this is the impact of what that means in your life. Since this historical event has happened in the past, that Christ is now alive, here's what your life is to look like. And it just continues to lay out those things. But one of the things that Ephesians ends with, uh, Paul is writing, the same author is writing it. One of the things Ephesians ends with in Ephesians 6, that Paul takes a little bit of time and he begins to lay out the, uh, the spiritual picture, the spiritual climate for the believer. And he reminds every Christian, every individual, but specifically Christians, he reminds them that this physical world is not all there is, but that there's a spiritual dimension to everything that we face. That there's a supernatural dimension to life. That there's a supernatural dimension to your life. There's a supernatural dimension to your home. There's a supernatural dimension to the world you live in. And so he reminds them of that, and he continues to remind them that there's a very real enemy strategizing to take them out. He has plans and strategies, and, and the words that are used talk about a very well-laid plan to undermine God's plans in your life. But he's talking about the, the supernatural dimension and the plans of the enemy. And when we take that and we read that, we have to remember that he's talking about the Christian life, which includes the mind. So that means that there is a supernatural dimension to your mind, and the enemy has strategic plans for your mind, the things we've just talked about. And I really believe one final step in this, in recognizing the work that God wants to do in the renewing of our minds, is not only praying right, not only thinking right, replacing the thoughts as they come, and, and really um, showing them out, but rather I believe the final stage that really is a key part in solidifying what God has done is your testimony. Look in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 17, but in verses 10 through 18, he's talking about the things I've just shared. But then he begins to describe the, the Roman uh, soldier's armor. He has Roman soldiers around him, and he begins to describe the armor that has really become to, to come to be known as the Christian armor, if you're familiar with a phrase like that. But he describes the different pieces of the Roman soldier's armor and how it relates to the Christian life, how we protect our hearts, our shield of faith, helmet of salvation, belt of truth, those kind of things. But look what he says in verse number 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I've grown up in church. I've been around church. I can remember in going to VBS as a small kid or a vacation Bible school, or I can remember going to um, Sunday school, different things like that. And they would have all of these different things. And one thing they used to have is they would call it your sword drill. Anybody ever familiar with the phrase a sword drill? 
The sword drill, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, is it, you would have your Bible and you'd have it open and be eager and ready and they would list off a verse and you had to flip there as fast as you can and if you found it first in your Bible, then you got points for your team. So it's kind of like your sword drill, that's what they called it. And what they were basing that off of is taking the written word of God and they were calling it God, the sword of God's word, which is what we just read in Ephesians chapter 17. Now, the Bible does tell us that God's word is like a sword. Uh, Hebrews 4 describes it. It says that God's word cuts to the heart. That's why we can hear individuals share God's word and, and speak his truth, and it'll cut to our heart. It'll be like, man, it's just speaking to me and challenging to me. That's the sword of the spirit, God's word, the written word, speaking and challenging our hearts to the Holy Spirit. But I hate to... to, to shake anybody's uh, childhood picture this morning. But when we talk about the sword of the spirit, meaning the written word of God, that is not what Ephesians chapter six, verse 17 is talking about. Ephesians chapter six, verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There's a couple of different words that could be used to, to, to translate um, here when he says to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the, the word that Paul chose to write here is not the word that speaks of the written word, the physical written word here, but rather he, he wrote the word, the Greek word rhema. The Greek word rhema means spoken word. Primarily it speaks to a spoken word. And so what he speaks to is he says, take up your sword of your spirit, which is the spoken word of God. So for the follower of Jesus Christ, God's word becomes alive and becomes powerful and becomes the sword that cuts down the attacks of the enemy when you take it and you begin to declare it. You begin to declare it over your life. You begin to declare it over your thoughts. You begin to declare it over your family. That's why in Revelation 12, 11, when it's talking about believers in the end times, it says the enemy, the devil has fallen to earth and that he's gone to earth to lead astray all that he can. And it says they overcame him, the believers, the Christians in that age, it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the, word, the work of what Christ has done. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony the declaration of what God has done. So if you find yourself dealing with worry, dealing with anxiety, finding it trying to undermine your life and undermine your faith, one of the best things that you can begin to do is to declare God's word out loud over your mind, over your life, over your family. That is why when you find yourself in a place where you're wondering, I, what, what happens if we run out? What happens if we're going to find ourselves lacking something? What happens if we don't have enough? That you would declare over your life and over your mind and declare it until it's not just words in your mouth, but it's truth from your soul. Psalms 23 verse 1, it says, the Lord is my shepherd and because he guides me, I never lack a thing. Find yourself, when you find yourself in a place where you're worried over, over your health, you're worried over what could be coming and perhaps the report the next doctor is going to bring or the next checkup that's going to happen and you find your mind turning over the what ifs and the buts and what's going to happen. What, what about this? What about that? When you find yourself at that place, declare with your mouth and over your mind and over your body. Psalms 103 verse 2, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. If you find yourself in a place and you feel like you're just slipping into the pit of fear and it's just strangling you and it's holding you and you can barely breathe and you can barely think clearly, you can barely face your day, begin to declare over your life and begin to declare over your mind. Psalm 34 verse 4, it says, I called to the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. The best thing that you can do is to take the written word of God personalize it into your sword and begin to declare it over your life. And I would encourage you to customize it. There's not a person here who is surprised by what fear you may face. There's not a person here who is surprised by the worry or anxiety that you will face, whether it be later this afternoon or tomorrow or later this week or whatever might come. You already know, the devil already knows the number that he can punch in your life that's going to trigger fear and worry and anxiety and the downward spiral in your mind. So begin to customize, take time this afternoon, customize your sword, God's word, to being your declared sword so that it's used. And there's one more thing about the sword I'll give you and then we'll, we'll wrap up. One of the things that the Roman soldier 
would do when he was standing and he had his, his, his gear on and Paul would look at them as they had the, the sword and we, we pictured this long like, um, sword that would be used and, and long broad sweeps and cuts. But that's not even the type of sword Paul's describing. So the Roman soldiers carried a second sword and it was a much smaller sword, almost a dagger that could be kept tucked in their belt or tucked under a garment. And it was used in such a way that when the enemy got so close that the long, wide sword for sweeping could no longer do effect because the enemy was even closer and had penetrated and broken the lines, the soldier would then pull out the personal sword and use it for close hand-to-hand combat. And that's the sword he's talking about. And that's the truth of God's word in your life. Use it for that hand-to-hand combat, recognizing that God has given you the strength, he has disarmed the enemy, and he has given you the authority in your mind and in your heart and in your life to begin to undermine fear, undermine worry, undermine anxiety. And if you want to take everything that I covered last week and everything that I've covered this week, I think you could summarize it in three, three simple words. And those three simple words would be, change your perspective. Change your perspective about God, about your life, about your family, about your sickness, about anything. Change your perspective. Get it, get it up on God. Get it focused on him and let him do his work. And when we put these things into practice, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which transcends, which goes beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But look what he guards. It says he guards your heart. And he guards your mind. He guards your mind and he guards your emotions. He guards your soul. He guards your perspective. He guards everything about you. It says the peace of God covers over you, covers over your life, covers over your circumstances, covers over your family as you look to him and as you trust him. And as I was thinking about this in verse 7, it says the peace of God transcends all understanding, that he guards our hearts and our minds in him that I really believe the only way that we, we lose the peace of God in our lives is not because he walked away, but it's because we did something that forfeited it. We did something that allowed a breach. We chose not to get our heart and our mind focused through prayer upon who God is. We chose to allow thoughts to come and remain. We chose not to declare the truth of God over our lives, over our minds, and over our family. Won't you stand with me this morning as we prepare to close? I know when I talk about fear and anxiety and worry that it really hits home for many individuals. And I know for many individuals here this morning that it's been a lifelong struggle. It's something you face, something you've tried to tackle, something you've tried to deal with in a number of ways. And I just want to encourage you this morning to know that there's hope. There's hope, there's an end in sight, there's peace. And there's a peace that God promises to give you, to cover over you, to guide you through as we lift our eyes to him and we keep our hearts set up on him. So friends, this morning with no one's looking around, before I open the front as a place of prayer, a place to respond, I talk about the peace of God that he extends to us and desires for us to live in. The peace of God begins in relationship with Jesus Christ. And we never assume in a room like this with individuals here that every individual here this morning is in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Walking through these doors this morning didn't put you in right relationship with Christ. Carrying a Bible and singing the songs didn't either. What the Bible tells us is that the one way that we enter into relationship with God is through, through coming to a place of repentance. The Bible calls the place of repentance, we agree with God on how our sin is. We agreed with God on our life and we recognize our need to give him control, to surrender to him. And the most amazing thing about that surrendering, that repenting, that turning our heart to God and placing our trust in Jesus Christ, the most amazing thing about that is you can come and you can kneel and pray at the front, but it's a conversation that you can start with God right where you're standing. And I would encourage you this morning for every individual here, just take time, look in your heart, look in your life and say, am I in a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Have I placed my faith and my trust in him so that his peace really is extended to me? And if that's you this morning and you've yet to place your faith in Christ, before I open the front for others to come and pray, can I just ask you to be honest this morning and with a ra- show of hands, with a raise your hand and say, I would like to give my life to Christ. 
I'd like to place my faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Just to raise your hand long enough for me to see it. I can see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. You can put it down. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you for being honest. Are there others who would like to join these this morning and say, I, I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I need to give him control of my life. For those three that raised their hands and many others, even if you didn't raise your hand, begin to talk to God right there. Begin to call out to him and say, Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive me of my sin. Please forgive me of not looking to you. And I ask you to change my heart, change my mind. Help me to trust you and help me to know you. And as you have pray a prayer similar to that or in your own words, confessing your need for Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and he begins to make you brand new from the inside out. He begins to renew who you are so that you're now in right relationship with him. And in just a second, as I open the front here, I'm gonna invite those ones who raised their hand and others perhaps to come find a place to pray or even at the end, you'll see leaders on either side praying. You can come and have them pray with you. They would love to pray with you and just to share some information with you and just to congratulate you on this new journey in Christ. And then friends for others, I want to open the front as a place of just response. And perhaps any number of things that I've said this morning has hit home and resonated in your heart. But I believe from many here, God has been speaking that God by his spirit has been kind of just touching a part of your heart, a part of your life saying, just trust me in this. Just surrender this to me. Just give this to me. It might be in a renewing of your mind. It might be in an alignment of your thoughts with what his word says to be. It might be in a, a place in an area of worry or concern that's held you bound. It might be in any number of things. But this morning is a fresh invitation to come, to get still, to get alone, to get to worship in God's presence and to gather on the front as a place to respond to what it is that God's doing in your heart and in your life right now. So as the worship team sings, friends, you begin to come and find a place to pray. Thank you, God. Lord, I pray over those who have gathered here and even those still standing at their seats, God. And Lord, I thank you for your commitment to continually align us with who you are. I thank you that you never give up. You've never reached a point where you say you're done and you've had enough. So Lord, this morning we open our minds and our hearts to you and we invite you to do your work. God, I pray for many, even as they're around the altars, God, that, that in their minds, God, that you would work and undo what only you can do. God, I pray that you'd give them insight and understanding, really give them the keys, God, that unlock you know, the things in their heart and in their mind that they really need to entrust to you and give to you. God, I pray for those who have placed their faith in you this morning. I pray that, God, you would be more real to them right now than they have ever known you to be. I pray that by your nearness and your presence, you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that there would be a hunger within them to grow in knowing you and to seeking you and to knowing your word, to seeking you and being filled with your spirit. God, we give each one to you this morning, God, and we give you all of our hearts and our lives and all of the different ways that we respond and are open to you this morning. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God.